The human desire to seek decent employment and livelihoods is at the core of the nexus between migration and development. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, which was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in September 2015, provides for a strong link between decent work and migration in sustainable development goals on promoting inclusive and sustainable economic development. Recognition of human mobility is a key factor for sustainable development. So today we'll discuss the nexus between migration and development, and I'm pleased to welcome Christian Fidanovsky, Zenebe Uraguchi, and Elena Slashidze. Christian is a Barnett Scholar at the University of Oxford. For his research, he is exploring the relationship between ideology and fertility in Eastern Europe, where low birth rates, often coupled with high brain drain, are leading to unsustainably small relative workforce size. Zenebe is a development economist with multi-country experience in Asia, North America, Eastern Europe, and Africa. His professional background started working with a multinational private company, Toyota, as international trade manager and with the Development Research Institute before moving to international development with Helvetas. Elena is an economic development practitioner currently leading the programmatic areas at the Optum Project in Moldova. Zeneve, let me start with you. Uh, migration has increasingly become a complex phenomenon affecting social, economic, and political aspects of regions and countries. A lot has been said and written about the migration development nexus. What do you think about it? What are the key issues? It's true that uh, a lot has been written and, and said about migration. Um, migration is a newsworthy topic uh, for good or, or ill. Millions of people are uh, on the move um, and this captures the attention of policymakers and, and citizens. Um, as we speak, there are more than 270 million people uh, on the move, uh, international migrants. Um, this figure uh, equals just uh, uh, about three, uh, 3.5 uh, uh, percent of the, the, the world's population. Yet migration is, is not new. Um, mobility has been part of uh, human history uh, and it, it has been an important source of uh, livelihood strategy. Um, but what I think seems to be uh, a bit different for the past few years is the acceleration and complexity of migration. Uh, there are a number of macro and micro push and pull factors or, or, or reasons. Um, at the macro level, for example, you have change in, in, in political stability, meaning rising conflicts. You have also uh, demographic transition or, or dynamics. You have environment and climate change, the so-called climate migrants. Um, at the same time, at macro level, uh, you have uh, individuals and, and communities um, in search of improved living conditions uh, to rejoin a family or, or in, in response to uh, economic opportunities or aspirations to 
to migrate to, to other countries. But here, uh, we also need to recognize that um, drivers of, of migration over, often overlap. This means that there is no, um, often no single argument for an individual to decide to leave his or her place of origin. Within the, the intensified or accelerated level of migration and in its complex relationship with, with, with development, I see three important issues. The, the, the first um, issue is the evidence on, on migration development connection or the so-called uh, nexus has grown, um, but it's still very thin. It's very, very weak. So what does this mean? Uh, in practice, this means that there are many blank spaces on, on the regional and, and global evidence of, 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 of migration development connection that, that needs to, to be built, that needs to be improved um, uh, through generating accurate and, and, and comparable data. So that's the, the first issue. The second issue is also the migration development discussion has has increasingly um, entered into the the public debate um, in terms of you know the shift to security migration and then development connection. Um, third, um, as an important issue that I see for the past two decades is the current global frameworks are are inadequate to 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 address today's um, complex global migration dynamics. Christian, uh, migration and demographic challenges have various effects in the political, social and economic areas and are impacting the societies in the Balkans and generally Eastern Europe. What does this mean for the future of workforce in the region? It has a lot of different implications and I'll start with the political ones um, because those are the most short-term effects and the most visible effects as well. So uh, they're a little easier to discuss. Um, and there is this paradox, right? Because so many young people are leaving our countries in the region uh, because they're not happy with their governments. And those governments are often you know, conservative or at least more conservative than, than the young people that are leaving. So they're running away from, from conservative uh, political options, politicians and parties. But then by leaving, they're actually making the countries more conservative because the population that stays is on average more. Conservative. So politically, um, conservative parties tend to benefit from, from out-migration, from the brain drain of young and well-educated uh, people. Of course, these people can still vote in national elections even when they uh, live abroad, uh, but the impact of the diaspora vote, of course, is always relatively insignificant, and they tend not to vote um, a lot of the times as well once they have left their country. So politically speaking, conservative parties do seem to stand to benefit, at least in the short term, not only from, from brain drain, but also from population aging as a whole, because it has been proven in many countries that as uh, populations age and basically as, a, as an individual person within a population gets older, they tend to vote more uh, conservative. So, um, of course, young people today in the region are also as progressive as young people have ever been in history. So it'll remain to be seen whether 
these young people, when they get older, whether they will confirm this trend, whether they will also become more conservative with age, or whether actually for the first time there might be an exception to this. So maybe this cohort, uh, this particular cohort of young people today will stay progressive even as they as they get older. So it's long term, it's not as clear, but short term, it seems that conservative uh, parties are, are favored by the current demographic uh, situation. Socioeconomically, though, things are a little more complicated, but also more important to analyze, even though uh, socioeconomic uh, effects can be difficult to, to predict and, uh, and examine. But uh, the most important part to mention is that um, overall, brain drain has a triple, I would say, negative effect on workforce size. So first, of course, with people of working age leaving, uh, the workforce is shrinking, right? Then second, these people have their children abroad, which means that uh, the, the workforce is depleted of future workers as well, because when these children uh, grow up, they will most likely stay in their, in their new countries. And then the third effect is that when those children, uh, so the generation that is lost because of their parents migrating today, when those children become a reproductive um, age, they will, uh, they will be in their new countries and uh, therefore 20 or 25 or 30 years from now, a so-called negative fertility echo will be felt, meaning that fertility can be expected to suffer negatively from this um, even one generation later. What does this mean for population aging? Well, uh, in demography, the concept that is usually used to, to analyze this is the old age dependency ratio, meaning that, and the ratio basically compares uh, people who are aged 65 or older and the working population, working age population. And this ratio in 2000, in Europe as a whole, was one to four, which was not great even then. But, you know, there were four uh, working age people supporting one retired person in the population. So that was much more sustainable than the situation today. And the situation is expected to become much worse and is already uh, progressively becoming worse. Some estimates are suggesting that by 2050, in Europe as a whole, the ratio might become uh, one to two. So only two working age adults for a single retired person in the population. So you can imagine what that means for, for pension systems and for therefore for society as a whole. So uh, as, as is the case elsewhere in the world, there is a need clearly to raise the retirement age, uh, which is not a very popular uh, political proposition. Uh, we know what happened in Russia when Russia tried to increase the retirement age, uh, massive protests, and that's probably the reason why many countries in the region, governments in the region are hesitant to, to go down this road, but they might, might, might have to do so uh, very soon. But unfortunately, um, currently actually in North Macedonia, there is a law in parliamentary procedure which goes in the opposite direction. So uh, uh, the law is stipulating that public sector employees will have to retire at 64. 64 was actually the minimum retirement age in, in North Macedonia, even, even now without this law. But it's possible under the status quo for people to continue uh, to work longer than that if they want to. It's 64 for men, by the way, and 62 for, for women. Uh, so this, this law uh, is, is actually moving things in the opposite uh, direction. And, and I mentioned the gender gap as well, which is very paradoxical. And it's, and it's still there in most East European countries. It's not just in North Macedonia. 
uh, women can retire earlier, even though uh, they tend to live longer. And in, in North Macedonia, um, they, they live up to four years uh, longer than men on average. So there is no factual basis for, for this uh, gender gap in the retirement age to persist. And in fact, in most non-East European countries, uh, it's, it's not there. So it's, a, it's very much a socialist legacy, which is exacerbating uh, population aging. For your research, you're exploring the relationship between ideology and fertility in Eastern Europe. How do you think these regional migration and demographic trends could affect the dom domestic policies in these countries? It is a big problem throughout the region. Uh, and we all know about this number of 2.1 children per woman, right? Which is necessary for uh, a country to replace itself, the so-called replacement level. Well, Eastern Europe has long fallen un, uh, below this uh, this level. Uh, even Kosovo, which is the closest at, at 2.0, according to some estimates, is still uh, below this level. Uh, and there, it's, it's not irrelevant whether a country is at 1.3, for example, or, or 1.8. So this is all bad because it's lower than, than 2.1. But there are still some important uh, differences in terms of, of population aging. So. Uh, to give one example, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina has a, an exceptionally low fertility rate of 1.3. Uh, and if, if we compare it to Russia, for example, uh, with, with 1.7, uh, Russia has attempted a very extensive um, birth raising uh, policy consisting of child-related allowances to, uh, to parents, which, which can only be used for, for, for specific purposes, mainly housing, but also some other, uh, other uh, reasons. And in Russia, uh, 1.7 is the fertility that we have now as a result, mainly of, of this policy, but also other uh, societal trends. So it's an example of how policy can actually make a difference. Um, I'm not saying that the, the, the increase in Russia was solely due to policy, and I'm not saying that this is replicable uh, in other countries. But if we take the current uh, situation, 1.7 fertility in Russia, uh, the Russian population, if uh, fertility and life expectancy stay the same in the foreseeable future, the Russian population will have, uh, so it will become twice as small as it is today, uh, in 112 years from now. So that's actually relatively, you know, depressing. Uh, it's, it's still a negative uh, phenomenon. Uh, but it, when you compare it to Bosnia and Herzegovina, where at fertility of 1.3, it can be expected to have in 45 years there's clearly a very big difference. So in the Bosnian case, it will happen within most of our lifetimes if, if nothing is done um, about this. So fertility clearly has to be uh, raised. And um, of course, raising fertility can very easily be instrumentalized by conservative uh, politicians. It can sound like a rallying cry, you know, for, for saving the nation and, you know, our um, culture will disappear, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it can be abused, of course, but it, it should be considered a pan-ideological issue. So liberal, progressive parties should think very seriously about it as well, because as we discussed earlier, it has very palpable uh, socioeconomic uh, implications. So it's not just child-related allowances that can be attempted uh, in dealing with this. There is also parental leave, which has to be diversified. In Eastern Europe, uh, it is notoriously uh, non-diversified compared to Western Europe. Uh, fathers use way too few uh, days of, of parental leave, uh, even when they're... So the, the most important aspect is probably to uh, reserve some days for mandatory use by the fathers, because when it's optional, because of cultural norms, many fathers uh, opt not to, to use these days, uh, even though they're allowed uh, by law. Um, 
and also childcare and daycare um, availability and affordability, especially is another important um, weakness of, of many European countries. So only a combination of all of these family policies can uh, help increase uh, fertility in the future. So Elena, you are a migrant worker yourself. Uh, do you feel as if you have taken something away from your community back home? Or do you see migration as a positive phenomenon? And does migration enrich societies and catalyze knowledge sharing and speed up development? Uh, it's a very interesting question. And uh, this is something that I've been reflecting um, along all my migration status, let's put it that way. Uh, so I currently live in Moldova, but I'm coming from Georgia. Uh, and uh, I also had some past uh, migration experiences in my life. Uh, and uh, the way I look at it is um, every time you go somewhere um, to another country, you're uh, getting exposed to a different society, uh, different people. And that, uh, that makes you on one hand test your own resilience because uh, that's where you test your ability to integrate into the community, uh, your ability to adapt, uh, but at the same time you learn a lot. Um, and um, this is like a little bit related to my first experience because I was studying abroad and uh, in that uh, period of time uh, this, is, this is what I got myself equipped with. The resilience, adaptability to the new society, community, and then learning a lot. But now uh, when I'm working abroad, uh, this comes a little bit um, as a challenge as well. And every time you get a challenge in life, you develop and you learn. Uh, but then what do you do with that? And what I experienced myself is like... Um, there's, there's so much going on and there's so many insights that I need to share them with someone. And what I usually do is I share it with my friends, with my family, with my former colleagues, and then I get feedback. And that feedback from my former colleagues makes me think that mm, I'm actually not taking away myself from them, but I'm actually contributing to their uh, de development in a way. Um, I don't wanna be over ambitious on saying that, but this is what I feel that being exposed to new societies, new communities, new cultures, new knowledge, new challenges, we grow and then we share. And I think this is uh, an exceptional phenomenon. Um, and I feel like I'm in no way taking away anything from the community that I left, but opposite, I'm always sharing back. And what also strikes me in uh, the migration is uh, the more you travel, uh, the more you work outside your own country, the more you interact with different cultures and people, the more tolerant you become yourself. Because, um, I don't know, recently I encounter more and more um, like social biases or like, um, you know, the subtle discrimination. And, I th and uh, this usually comes from a very uh, conservative societies that... Um, like um, refrain from exposing themselves to different differences. Uh, and migration in a way uh, helps you to be more tolerant because you realize that, uh, yeah, there are different norms and there are different rules in, in, in different societies. And uh, the more open and the more exposed you are to them, then you become more tolerant and kind of, a, I don't know, kind hearted. <laughs> if we put it in more like a social uh, phenomena. So, I mean, I personally think that migration is good. 
And there is also a lot of evidence about it. And um, I don't know, I come across uh, different articles or different opinions where actually uh, there is a lot of evidence showing that people who leave the country, they learn a lot and then they invest back. And same could be about uh, diaspora investment or same could be when people return to their home countries and then invest into businesses um, and then, yeah, and then enrich uh, the economic development, the social development and uh, resilience. So back to you, Zeneve. Uh, what what are the myths on migration? The first conventional wisdom is that migrants always cross international borders. No, it's not true. Uh, a much larger number of migrants are moving within countries and then not between between countries. That's the first point that I would like to emphasize. And then the second kind of myth or conventional wisdom on migration is. We, we, we often assume that it is developed countries in Europe or North America that, that host um, a large number of migrants. This is not also true. Um, Asia receives over 60% of all international migrants. Um, Intra-regional migration within Asia is still very high and, and has significantly um, increased uh, over time. So that means that South-South migration continues to be as relevant as South-North migration. That's because moving regionally is, is becoming attractive for economic, but also um, uh, social motivations. Thirdly, uh, perhaps we, we have also um, kind of a typical kind of image about international migrant and and I need to be honest here this probably is an African like myself on on a rubber boat trying to cross rivers or, or oceans actually it's not Africa that um, that kind of um, has become the source of the largest continental uh, international migrants it's Asia once again the number of Asian migrants has grown to about uh, 27, uh, about 87 million. The story, it seems, is one-sided. What do you think of immigration versus migration? Um, just to, to, to give you an example, in, in April 2019, there, there was a survey um, uh, covering, you know, 14 countries in, in Europe um, where um, people were more concerned about immigration with an E than immigration with an I. That is more worried about people leaving the, the countries in Europe than those coming in. Um, as you know, population levels in countries such as Spain, Italy, Romania, Greece are either uh, flat lining uh, or falling sharply. Um, and then since um, also the, the 2008 economic crisis, young Europeans from these countries have more and more left their countries of origin. So I think it's important when we talk about um, issues of migration, we need also uh, to challenge some of these myths or misperception or conventional wisdom. How can development organizations 
integrate the perspectives of migrants and contribute to large-scale development impacts? Great question, but not easy to answer. But let me let me start by saying that the the two uh, the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals um, explicitly recognize the, the the positive contribution of migration for sustainable and an inclusive development by by trying to mainstreaming um, the the topic of migration and development um, um, through having you know specific targets that that's a good start yet if if the objective is to turn migration into a positive experience for for the mutual benefits of uh, countries of destination uh, transit and an origin uh, we need to be aware that um, migration does not exist in isolation from formal and then informal rules, norms and values, as well as other related services like skills development, coordination, uh, information. In other words, it is not simply uh, the interaction between migrants' origins and, and their destinations that determines the outcome of safe and orderly migration. So complex, network, complex networks of services and then rules are often at play in countries of origin, transit and, and destination. So therefore, development organizations, they need to work around what I call the ecosystem of migration in a more facilitative manner to make migrants more informed, empowered and, and, and protected perhaps that could offer also better opportunities for a more improved migration management than, than simply to, to try to control migration. This is the first point that development organizations uh, need, need to improve. Secondly, there are also specific entry points which can be leveraged more. Uh, let me give you an example from, from what is often called the, the three R's, um, which stand for remittances, returns, and recruitment. For example, a lot has been has been done to tap into the the opportunities that remittances offer. Um, while remittances um, support migrant migrant countries of origin, their contributions have been less productive, with the exception of um, increasing consumption and then contributing to to uh, jobless growth that is inflating you know the the GDP figures of, of countries um, so I think we can tap into the potential of remittances to use them for contributing to better economic development not just um, the growth of DGP G GDPs um, with regard to returns uh, beyond sending money, which is again related to remittances, migrants also transfer um, knowledge, resources, technology, ideas to, to their home countries. Um, increasingly, circular migration has, has, has gained prominence. So, so migrants um, have an emotional attachment and then uh, a very strong desire to to contribute to the, the country of, 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 of origin. Uh, returnees also have the local knowledge, uh, they have also the, the networks, and then the higher motivation because of collective memory and myth about the homeland 
including the desire to to return home one day. Um, yet, the the role of returnees can play in in the development of their their countries of origin has been short of its potential. While there are few cases and 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 contributions by by returning migrants, um, these are often carried out on on an ad hoc basis, relying mainly um, on informal networks. There are also cases that significant regulatory barriers seem seem to discourage potential returnees' desire to contribute to uh, their countries of origin. This is where development organizations can play can play more role. And then finally, with regard to recruitment as part of one of the R's, the challenge is, is that skills development through improved levels of education and training may not necessarily uh, keep aspiring migrants from, from living. This is called uh, the migration hump. That means that people with better skills may not be satisfied with the benefits that they get um, in their local labor markets, and hence they decide to leave. This means that labor market development initiatives by development organizations, we need to be a little bit, they need to be holistic. That means that it's not just addressing, you know, skills development, but also other dimensions of labor market systems like job matching services and, and career guidance, as well as the creation of decent and, and well-paying well -paying jobs. Even if people decide to leave after, you know, increasing their skills, if they leave, they live equipped with different types of skills to meet um, the challenges of life in the countries of destination, and then to to contribute meaningfully to their newfound uh, newfound home, so to speak. So, evidence shows that uh, migrant workers face some of the most serious decent work deficits, that is, exploitation and abuse, in particular at the re recruitment stage. This is a consequence of how recruitment is organized, regulated, and then monitored. So multilateral organizations like the ILO and then other development organizations like Helvetas are increasingly working on this issue of, of, uh, of um, um, uh, migration, that's recruitment. So these are some of the areas where um, development organizations can have uh, a facilitative role uh, to contribute to uh, making migration a positive experience uh, for mutual benefits for countries of origin, countries of uh, transit and countries of destination. So there are some estimates, um, according to the United Nations mainly, that uh, the Western Balkans can become a source of in-migration in the future rather than a source of out-migration which sounds very unrealistic to us given the situation at the moment. Uh, but of course, if our countries, uh, you know, stabilize both economically and politically and enter the European Union, then it's certainly a, a possibility. Uh, but in terms of fertility, to go back to that, because of course these issues are always interrelated, uh, even in-migration won't really make a lot of difference. It will make a lot of difference, of course, for, for the workforce size. 
but long term it won't raise the fertility probably won't raise the fertility rate enough for uh, the workforce size to benefit from this um indefinitely um in the future because usually what happens when when people from lower fertility countries migrate to countries with sorry from countries of higher fertility migrate to countries with lower uh fertility then uh they actually their fertility tends to converge over time with the fertility of the country of arrival with the new country so in germany for example or italy when there are migrants arriving from 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 the middle east mainly in in the german case uh in the short term their fertility tends to be higher uh, than the fertility of of the local population but very quickly even within a generation sometimes uh, it actually converges uh towards the lower level the, the original uh, level of fertility in the population so migration can be very helpful in migration of course uh but it's not a permanent uh solution to um, population aging i don't know like i personally think that uh human beings are inclined towards freedom like we always strive for freedom uh, and covid 19 comes with a lot of restrictions that are putting the burden on us psychologically uh, and also emotionally uh, and um, like, uh, I wanted to share uh, a bit of the aha moment that I had recently, uh, because uh, not very long ago, I did an interview with one of the senior experts in that field. Uh, and uh, what struck me is uh, that she related uh, the migration phenomena to the historical reasons for migration. And she mentioned that the people were moving uh, all the time despite uh, various factors. And then the movement of people, the fruit movement of people will not be dramatically affected in the future. This is like a natural uh, urge of uh, people to get out and explore and learn. So from that point of view, the migration will still happen. It just maybe will change some of the shapes, but uh, the migration as such, um, yeah. And I share that I don't think that uh, this will like change significantly the phenomena maybe some patterns but yeah not dramatically migration is a historic an economic and and and, and social reality that is that is here to stay and then even may increase in the coming decades because of um uh, the impact of climate change or uh, regional demographic development and then other reasons. Um, first of all, shocks like like COVID um, might have affected the trends and 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 patterns of 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 migration. However, fundamental factors that have been at the heart of driving human mobility for for decades and centuries they are here to stay. They are not going to change fundamentally for example demographic dynamics deficit of the labor force in high income countries and then and then other factors what this means secondly is that more and more work is needed for an effective governance of migration through partnership between countries of origin transit and destination uh, to give you an example the global compact for migration is is a good initiative that seeks to achieve such an objective through creating conducive conditions that try to, to, to enable migrants to enrich societies through their human, economic and, and social capacities. So I think there is a need for these 
multi-stakeholder initiatives through partnerships among the different countries. And thirdly, the future of migration as a positive experience will require increased generation of evidence that can be used for evidence-informed advocacy so that we can all make migration beneficial to countries of origin, transit, and destination. Here, while international migration receives a lot of attention in policy discussions, what is really lacking is the focus on internal migration, internal mobility, which is also an important and significant livelihood strategy. I also expect increased attention and then more work on documenting and advocating for the role of internal migration for inclusive and then sustainable development. So I see uh, the future of migration to be shaped, to be influenced around these key areas and issues. All right, this was the second round of Inclusive Plug powered by Reconomy. We have interesting topics coming up, so stay tuned and hit the subscribe button. Whether you agree or disagree with the ideas expressed by our guests, please send us your feedback or comments. This was Sabine, a communication manager at Reconomy, a program of the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency implemented by Helvetas in 12 countries in Eastern Europe, South Caucasus, and the Western Balkans. Thank you for tuning in and see you soon.